Hello, and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. Today we're going to conclude the strength of calm with our second episode dedicated to anger. Last week we had a broad conversation focused on how we can better walk the line between skillful and unskillful expressions of anger. Today we're going to focus more narrowly on working with our anger skillfully when it does arise inside of us. To help us do that, I'm joined today, as always, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So what are some of the ways that we can work with anger skillfully? There's a really motivating thing about anger to realize that it hurts you as much as it hurts other people. It's Mm -hmm. interesting. In the moment that we feel sad or anxious or hurt, we don't like feeling that way. But in the moment we feel mad, it carries us right along. And therefore, because it's so seductive, it's so potent, we need to be especially clear about how it's an affliction upon ourselves. It's Mm -hmm. a burden. It's a poison. It's acid on our own psyche. Uh, The Buddha had a wonderful simile, a wonderful metaphor for anger. He said, anger with its honeyed tip and poisoned barb. So one of the very first things a person can do is take inventory. What are the ways in which anger affects you in your life that are costly to you? How does it wear down Uh, your well-being to be irritable or resentful or annoyed Mm -hmm. or exasperated a lot of the time? What are the costs in your relationships if you burst out with anger uh, or if you create a kind of possibility that if other people, quote-unquote, step out of line, you're going to get angry at them? Anger is the most salient social emotion in human and primate groups. Uh, Research shows that while uh, other people will notice it if you're sad or anxious or hurt, as soon as someone gets angry, the whole room starts focusing on that person. So just think about the impact on other people of your own anger as a way, in part, to motivate you to be more in control of it. That's a great place to start. Mm-hmm. And it's been one that, honestly, has been really meaningful for me. About a, a decade ago, maybe longer, I don't know, I just realized that anger was a big affliction on me. Mm. And when I could really, and I remember it all the time, that anger is bad for me. Mm -hmm. And obviously I care about its impact on other people, but in a most immediate and self-supportive way, when you know that anger is hurting you, you get more motivated to get a grip on it. That's interesting to me because not just speaking as someone where this is being recorded and I'm trying to like pump you up or something like that. But I've never thought of you as being a particularly angry person. Oh, thank like, you. Was there something that you were experiencing when you were going through that process as being a particular kind of trigger for you or a particular way that anger was coming into your life that was was problematic or or detrimental kind of consistently? Well, anger is a natural response to frustration. Mm-hmm. There's research on that. And anger is also a natural response to feeling mistreated by others. Mm -hmm. So it's a signal to us. us. It's it's useful. It's not that we're saying here we should suppress anger. And especially if someone belongs to a group of people that's sort of categorically or routinely mistreated or put down or uh, dismissed, uh, then it's especially important to not do that to your own anger, but Mm -hmm. but use anger as as a signal. But then the question is, what do you do then and what's useful? And uh, to be quite personal, there was a moment for me, and I don't know exactly when it was, Forrest, when uh, you were quite young, you mm-hmm. and Laurel were quite young, when I internally took on a kind of precept mm-hmm. of never speaking or acting from anger, mm-hmm. especially with you guys. Mm-hmm. And 
What was interesting for me on the very first day that I took that precept for myself, with some horror, I watched myself slip, certainly a dozen times. Now, the slips were fairly molecular. They were Mm. fairly small. A sniff of irritation, an eye roll, a feeling of a a tone of exasperation, or a certain (sighs) sigh, right? But if you really start paying attention to microscopic leakage of anger, you realize even if you're a fairly mellow person like I am, a fair amount is leaking out. Mm -hmm. And that's a really useful thing to pay attention to. And what happened when I took that discipline on, and I've gotten better at it over the years, it made me a better parent. Mm. Uh, For one, it made me more heartfelt and authentic because instead of busting out anger, it forced me to slow down and speak more from the heart about what I actually was feeling under the anger. Because very often there's hurt or fear or a feeling of mistreatment or worry under anger. The other thing it did is that it slowed things down. Because if we bust out with anger, uh, then there's often a kind of runaway cycle in which other people get mad, and then we get even madder, and then you're off and running. On the other hand, if you say to yourself, I have my anger, I may need to name my anger, but I'm not going to speak or act from anger, then it leads you to interact with other people in a way that's more careful and self-controlled and also gives them room to breathe around you, and which then gives them room to actually hear more fully their impact on you, and it increase the, increases the odds that they'll actually uh, be helpful with you. You're still reserving the right to be firm, to be strong, to be intense even, to be fiery. I think there's an interesting distinction between being fiery and being enraged or Mm. really angry, and that's Uh really useful to pursue. Uh, A kind of fierce place, there's, I think, a place for that. But it's important to really watch. Is this, is anger leading the horse here? Mm -hmm. Is anger leading the charge? And that's when we get into trouble. Mm -hmm. So you spoke to a second kind of technique there, which was not speaking or acting out of anger. And you even made allusion to a third one that we actually covered in the previous week a little bit as well, which is the idea of reducing priming. Yeah. You know, looking for what's underneath anger, how you said, you know, anger is a messenger of a kind. It's looking for something to tell you. And often it's impacted by the little things that build up inside of us over the course of the day. Uh, Last week, I had the metaphor that you referenced of throwing matches in the corner. Yeah. And if there's any way where we can reduce the buildup of those matches in our lives, I think that that's a great regular daily practice to take on. That's really great. A fourth technique for working with anger that you bring up in the book is this idea of reacting in proportion, mm, mm-hmm. which I always thought was was kind of interesting. It makes sense sort of intellectually, but I think it's kind of tough to do in the moment. Would you mind sort of explaining what you mean by that? Yeah, that one's been really useful for me. Mm-hmm. So it's if you imagine two scales, sure. right? one scale is the yuck scale. How bad is something? So zero to 10. Mm-hmm. And let's say a 10 is thermonuclear war or sure. the annihilation of all life on the planet. Yeah. There's no 11. It's not like the volume knob and spinal tap, the movie. There's, there's a hard 10. Okay. So on the zero to 10 yuck scale, how bad was it really? what that other person did to you. Maybe it was a nine, truly. Okay. But probably it was more like a four or a 0.4. And then the question is, is my reaction in proportion to the yuck? Mm. So if it's really a three, 
on the yuck scale. Imagine the anger scale. So if if 10 is full-out volcanic, almost violent rage, and one is sniffs of exasperation, mm-hmm. let's say, with you know the other numbers in between. Okay, if on the yuck scale it's a four, well, should your anger go past five? And if the truth is most of what happens in our life on the yuck scale is um, a one or a two, mm-hmm. is it really appropriate to read people the riot act at a five or a six or a seven? Mm-hmm. Not really. I think we could agree with that. So the question is, what jacks it up? A lot of what jacks it up, I think of it as, because of course I'm old, is a preamp. Uh, you young tech people probably have better <laughs> terms for this, but it's the kind of idea that the signal comes into this little module, the preamplifier, the preamp, and then it takes it as a one and jacks it up to an eight. Well, mm-hmm. inside our mind, we develop a preamp partly based on what you said about the priming that's built up related to the particular issue. You know, it's the fourth time that happened today. But another way it builds up is over time in a relationship Mm, where you mm -hmm. get gradually sensitized to somebody. Mm -hmm. And I think a great metaphor there is if you imagine dragging your fingernail across the back of your hand 10 times, doesn't really notice anything. You get up to about 100 times, it's getting pink. Mm -hmm. You get up to the thousandth time that the finger approaches the back of the hand, ooh, you want to pull it away. Mm So people become sensitized, literally neurologically, as you know, in terms of cortisol and the amygdala and the hippocampus and that whole circuit there in the brain of sensitization and weakening weakening of the inhibition, the breaks on the runaway amygdala-driven reactions. Well, people become sensitized to each other, Mm -hmm. which is an argument for really being a better person, taking a big breath, being brave. Mm -hmm. And speaking more directly about how things have built up with somebody else so you're less sensitized. You're more in the moment rather than pre-amplified by that you know, buildup of reactions in terms of your history to the other person. Mm-hmm. I think that another thing that impacts people's ability to react in proportion is sort of the habituality of anger. Hmm. What I mean by that is I think there are people where you just get sort of used to being at a seven. Yeah. And it doesn't really matter at a certain point what the trigger is. And it's not because necessarily of the relationship between the person being angry and the triggerer of that anger. It's instead about the relationship of the person being angry and some other relationship many moons ago. Yeah. You know, and this, and I think that it's helpful to think about it that way because it moves us into a little bit of a bigger picture. You know, we're not just thinking about, oh, I am having a difficult relationship right now in my love life. So I'm sort of triggered by that person. Yeah. Instead, we can think about, I've had difficult relationships in the past yeah. in my love life, and I still carry those with me to a certain extent today. Um, so I do think there's kind of a habitual ness to excessively angry reactions that comes out in some people and it's not just the angry dad you know it can be the angry anyone who sort of has that extra amping around the anger in their life yeah i think of a really useful distinction between being irritated and irritable Mm. so you're exactly right people develop yeah yeah, people develop moods much as a person can have depressed mood Mm-hmm. They can have anxious mood mm-hmm. and they can have irritable mood. So they're not yet irritated, but you get this feeling around them. They're just right there all yeah. the time. Yeah, yeah. Totally. It's, it's the habit of irritability. Mm-hmm. Uh, or a related one 
the motive grievance, mm. being aggrieved and or seething quietly in the background or the mood of resentment. And that too can become really habitual for people. And I think that one of the, for me, they're kind of two big takeaways. If you detect that in yourself, if you've acquired, if you're becoming aggrieved or resentful or irritable in general, be really aware of it mm -hmm. because other people notice it and it casts a long shadow. It's like an atmosphere that they're around, much as if you flipped it around, it would feel like an atmosphere that you were around. Additionally, just to repeat a point that we've made, and I think you're, you're really spot on for us because you, when you bring it up from time to time, it's important to deal with the underlying conditions. Maybe there's a reason you're aggrieved. Mm -hmm. And naming forms of mistreatment. I mean, one of the things I you know grappled with as well was trying to find a way to not speak or act from anger while also addressing ways that I was feeling mistreated, mm -hmm. uh, including by third parties who weren't stepping in mm -hmm. and weren't carrying an appropriate amount of responsibility or load themselves. And so it is important to think about why we are grieved or why we're getting irritated in the background or why we're becoming irritable and, and try to really address those, obviously for your own sake, but also if you address them, then you're going to be more able to be peaceful with other people. Mm -hmm. Just to point something out, this may seem inherently obvious when you were kind of in the process of doing it, but I think that you named something there that was really useful just by referring to grievances mm -hmm. or seething yeah. or another thing that we're going to talk about in a second, fault finding. Mm -hmm. Anger comes in a lot of different forms, and we discussed the forms of anger to a certain extent last week, but I think that it's easy to pigeonhole these techniques as being about when you're in the moment of an angry outburst mm -hmm. and to just kind of stop there. It's very easy for us to say, oh, I don't yell at people, so I'm not angry. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of kinds of being angry that aren't just about yelling people. Mm -hmm. And you sort of named that in a kind of stealthy way there, and I just kind of wanted to, to pull it out directly. So one of the things I mentioned is fault finding. Yeah. And one of the themes that sort of underlies uh, the book Resilient is your personal narrative. Mm -hmm. And you name overtly this idea of kind of growing up in a fault-finding home yeah. and, and fault-finding sort of becoming a habit. Mm -hmm. And as a fifth thing that we can do to interact with anger, becoming more careful about fault-finding in general. When you know what it's like to feel like you're always walking on thin ice mm -hmm. and you know sooner or later the people around you are going to find fault with you. Mm -hmm. They're going to find something missing, something wrong, some kind of lack. It always puts you on edge mm -hmm. unless you're really, really developed in your practice and you have <laughs> something like, you know, steel plated sure. armor, basically. Yeah. And one of the things about it is that we are vulnerable as social mammals, social primates to the criticism of others and to feeling shamed or uh, thought badly of by other mm. people. It's, mm -hmm. it's normal to care about what other people think of you. So that gives other people biologically a lot of power over you uh, to make you feel bad about yourself or to feel like you have to kowtow to them or submit to them to avoid some kind of scathing or shaming attack, even in the form of an eyebrow raised and a subtle sniff. Flip it around. If you're that way with other people, it's kind of oppressive. Mm -hmm. It's not good. 
And so I find myself that it's useful to paradoxically claim for yourself unilaterally the right to speak up about things that are important. But otherwise, much of the time, let the pitch go by. Mm. You don't need to swing at it, to use a baseball metaphor. They threw it. Maybe they did this thing. Are the stakes really high? Do you really have to point out their error? And often it's interesting what drives a fair amount of fault finding and its close cousin righteousness are certain strengths in people. Like I know in myself, I'm discerning. So I'm able to track uh, distinctions between ideal and actual that are fairly fine. And also, uh, I have a lot of background in history with getting things done. So I have some knowledge about effective ways to operate or to get things done. And those have been rewarded by the world. So using myself as exhibit A or a case history, uh, I plead guilty before the court here. It's interesting the ways in which our very talents, intelligence, discernment, uh, granularity of attentiveness to what works, capabilities of various kinds, can be used in the service of seeing how others did it wrong, and by implication, how you are better. Fault finding for me is an example of two of the things we've talked about so far. The first being that sort of stealthy anger, Mm -hmm. where it doesn't really feel like anger when it's in the process of happening. So we don't really identify it as that. And also this idea of it being so much more damaging to you than the people around you. Because when you're finding fault with something, you're mad about something fundamentally, just at a very basic level. And do you really need to carry that around? Like, do you have to carry that extra burden in your life of just being bothered by all of these things? Right? <laughs> bothered, what a just, word. Yeah, bothered. Like, everything's very bothersome. And you see people, yeah, who, who go through life just very bothered. And, and there are just people who are so bothered all the time by everything that's going on around them. And that's just not a pleasant way to move through life. It reminds me of a story that you've told previously, which is the idea of these two monks who are, you know, down by the river, and the two monks run into a beautiful woman. And as these stories go, none of it really makes that much sense. But for whatever reason, the beautiful woman requires one of the monks to carry her across the river, because it's a a dangerous river. But of course, this monk is capable of crossing it just fine with a woman in his arms. None of it makes any sense, but just go with it for a second. So, okay, so he's carrying this monk across the river, and of course, he's the elderly wise monk, and he's being followed by this younger monk, and the younger monk is just getting madder and madder because he's jealous of the older monk. But at the same time, he doesn't want to be like, I'm jealous of the older monk, so he starts finding fault with the older monk's Mm. actions, right? How dare this person pick up a woman, he has all these vows, he's in violation of them, oh, and he's touching her beautiful skin, and he's you know, hearing her beautiful breath in his ear, okay. And then they get to the other side of the river, and the older monk puts puts down the woman and says, have a great day, and just keeps on walking. And he's followed by the younger monk. And as they walk, the younger monk is just getting madder and madder and madder and madder. And finally, the older monk, kind of sensing that something's a little off in his companion, turns to him and says something to the effect of, so what's bothering you, younger monk? And The younger monk relays all of his concerns about this situation, all of the ways which he's found fault with the older monk. And the older monk kind of smiles and and nods. And and then he says, you know, I I put her down at the river, and you've been carrying her ever since. 
Yeah, and I, I, I know what, what a Shazam, right? Like it's it's funny how there are all these teaching stories with these very Buddhist types, and they often are filled with these pretty strong Shazams by the end of them. So what a Shazam! I put her down by the river, and you've been carrying her ever since. And I think that that is such a powerful allegory. Yeah, for so many different kinds of bother or fault finding that exist in our lives. Like, do you want to carry the problems and faults of other people with you? Or do you just want to leave them over there by the other people? So I just think that that's something to keep in mind whenever you start getting into a cycle of fault finding, which much like you, of the various ways that anger manifests has absolutely been my form of anger of choice, Mm, which is fault finding in other people for sure, because it's exactly what you're saying. It's about discernment. Yeah. And if I were talking about myself to somebody else, I would probably hold some version of oh, you know, I have very well thought out opinions or like I think about things deeply and I really consider them as like very much a value. But the flip side of that is absolutely the ability to kind of very thoroughly determine the very minute ways in which other people messed up. Yeah. And do you keep those to yourself? Do you let them, do you let the pitch fly on by as you were saying? Or do you kind of go out of your way to needle the people around you, which then kind of makes you feel all, all big and important in the moment, but kind of makes everyone else think you're not the greatest person, fills you with a lot of anxiety about those different concerns, and generally doesn't feel very good. So It's so interesting you say that. It reminds me of this notion that emerged three, four, five hundred years after the Buddha died in this sort of development called the Abhidhamma that's basically Buddhist psychology. Mm. And one of the notions in it, as a funny term, it's called the near enemy. In other words, mm. there are certain states of mind, let's let's say equanimity, that have their distant enemy, like the opposite of equanimity would be agitation, let's say, or enormous upset. But there's another state of mind that kind of is near to equanimity. So it can, it can masquerade as equanimity, but it's actually an enemy of equanimity, mm. such as apathy mm-hmm. or boredom. Sure. In the same way, you're making me think for us, about how fault-finding is the near enemy of discernment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There, there is a thin line between... And I, I mean, look, like we could we could scale this up to a lot of social commentary. I don't know if now is the moment oh, God, for it no, in this please. episode. We, gotta, we, we tread a little bit too deeply into social commentary last time, I think. Let's get back so to we'll, the river. I was about to say, we got to go back to the river with the monks. I mean, there, there is a thin line between being a critic and being excessively critical. There you are. And where you land in your life on yeah. those sides of the line is going to be a big contributor to your overall mental health and ability to form positive relationships with other people. Yeah, totally true. So that's an awful lot on fault finding, which is clearly a favorite of both of ours. <laughs> because we're good at it. Yeah, because we're very good at it, so we've got a lot to say. But... um Kind of moving on from there to the... Actually, the, can I... Oh, sure. Sorry to interrupt you. No. So it's my fault. I interrupted you. <laughs> you made me think about the I Ching mm. and this ancient book of wisdom from the Chinese culture, mm-hmm. not explicitly Buddhist. It probably predated Buddhism mm-hmm. in its origins. And I, one of the uh, recurring phrases in it that uh, has to do with a kind of uh, oracle or a penetrating uh, insight or comment on, on your situation. Mm-hmm. And some of them are bad news, some of them are good news. And one of the 
recurring statements, if you get a good news mm -hmm. comment on your situation, is no blame. Mm -hmm. And I think about no fault, like how good it feels to be in a no fault zone or a no blame zone. Mm -hmm. There can still be discernment, but what a relief it is, mm -hmm. how good it feels, no blame. There may be lessons to learn. There may be very important things to correct, but no blame. Yeah, I think that's a very important distinction between those things. To sort of move on from there to the... <laughs> Wait, what? I know, right? To the, to the sixth <laughs> point in our various ways of working with anger that you had was slowing down. Yeah. And that seems like a very sort of general, generic advice, but you really relate it to the actual machinery of the brain and the way that there's this kind of ramping up process in the body that is associated with anger. And I was wondering if you could just speak to that for a moment. Oh, yeah. So this relates to the increasingly familiar term, an amygdala hijack. But a little bit of neurobiology is actually useful here. So essentially, let's suppose something happens. Someone says something to you, or you bump your, your leg on a coffee table, and you're, or a child, let's say, that you're raising does something that's immediate and quick, that sensory information flows into your brain. And within the first half second or so, it gets processed in uh, the thalamus, the sensory switchboard of the brain. And within a second, for sure, it's been passed along to the subcortical regions that are physically close to the thalamus, which is also part of the subcortex sitting on top, essentially, of your brainstem. And at that point, the amygdala guided someone uh, hippocampus starts processing that information on the basis of react first, think later, because that's what keeps people and hominids and primates alive back in the jungle. A much slower pathway trickles up to the prefrontal regions, the much more modern cortical regions behind your forehead for analysis and reflection and judicious Act, planning and action. But meanwhile, the amygdala has gotten a two, three, four second head start. And in that head start, it tends to initiate a whole bunch of reactivity uh, running through hormonal systems coming from the hypothalamus and pituitary gland down to the adrenals releasing adrenal glands, releasing adrenaline and cortisol. So there's this hormonal pathway. And meanwhile, the sympathetic nervous system has been kicked into high gear by the amygdala, and all that's happened in the first second or two or three, designed by Mother Nature to keep you alive back in the Stone Age. And those reactions already are going forward, and they shape the way that circuitry in the neocortex evaluates the situation. So now we've got this flood of stress hormones and sympathetic nervous system activation and related priming and sensitization of other brain networks all in gear before the calm judicious chair of the committee, as it were, sitting behind the forehead, has had a chance to weigh in. And that's the amygdala hijack in action. Now, the thing to remember is that the amygdala is getting about a three-second head start mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. simplify a very complicated process, but sure. I can remember the number three. If you can give yourself those three seconds. Mm-hmm which actually is a fairly long interval between a person finishing what they're saying and you saying something. Like yeah. right now was about three seconds. Mm -hmm. 
which can feel like a really long time in an interaction. And to really give yourself the benefit of the doubt, take five. Sure. Take a single breath. Mm -hmm. That'll give you enough time to kind of get a grip on what's going on. Your body will still be revved up. Your heart will be beating faster. The amygdala will have done its job. Thank you, Mother Nature. But you will have given your calmer, clearer forces, as it were, a chance to catch up. It's really simple advice, but I think that if you take nothing else from this episode, that's a great thing to take. I can think of a couple of instances in my life where I've made a very thoughtful and slow and measured decision that like turned out to be a horribly bad decision and mm. was like horrifically wrong and mm. I shouldn't have done it and I totally regret it. But there really aren't that many. Mm-hmm. There are a lot more decisions that I've made that were made either spur of the moment mm-hmm. or that were kind of never made at all. Yeah. And they were just the eternal deferment of a decision. Yeah. You know, but a slow measured decision, your accuracy percentage is just going to be a lot higher than if you are rushing into that moment of leaping off the yeah. cliff with somebody else. I think else. that's really right. Yeah. You know, I, when I think about it in the moment, especially if we're being with another person who's provocative. Mm hmm or coming at us in some way, uh, or they've put us down. These are often what triggers people. In the moment, you don't want to be beaten by that person. Mm -hmm. You don't want them to win. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, and so there's a tendency to think, oh, I got to get in the fight. Mm -hmm. I got to strike back. I got to punch back. Totally. And so therefore, it's actually really helpful to motivate yourself to realize, I'm going to win by slowing down. Mm. I'm preserving my options. I'm gathering my forces. I'm going to win by slowing down. The seventh and final technique that we're given here today for working skillfully with anger is the idea of disengaging from righteousness. Righteousness is kind of a complicated word. It's got a lot of loaded connotations to it. I know that that discussion of righteousness was something that that you found particularly important. Righteousness is really close to fault-finding. Mm-hmm. But it's a way of focusing on how we think we are right and other people are wrong. And righteousness is uh, a close cousin to, it's a near enemy of being impeccable. Mm -hmm. Now, one time I was laughing, uh, your mom said, oh, God, Rick, you're so OCD. I said, no, I'm just impeccable. And of course, (laughs) only someone like me who has at least one of the 10 genes, I have no idea how many there really are, for OCD would actually really say that. So I was kind of making fun of myself at the time. But there's a really, there's appropriate, I think, for people to be impeccable. Um, And by the way, a detail, I looked up the actual word, impeccable is the opposite of having pecs or like a peccadillo is a fault. So impeccable means no blame. Only you would look up (laughs) impeccable in the dictionary to find like the Latin root of it and be like, it relates to this root word, which means having no, that's, that has got to be one of the most you stories I've ever heard. That's great. I'm glad that just happened and we recorded it. No one else believe it. But anyway, okay, okay. So it, there's something about, uh, well, the Buddha again, of course, now I'm going to bring in the Buddha. He talked about the bliss of blamelessness. So mm-hmm. you know that you're no blame, like I was saying that earlier. But that is different from righteousness. Righteousness mm-hmm. is the near enemy of blamelessness, of it being impeccable. And uh, wow, I can just watch my own mind, for example, um, tracking what's happening, 
And really, it's remarkable to watch your own mind and observe the near hop from just discerning what's going on and thinking to yourself, okay, got to take this into account in the future with this person. Or, okay, we we still have a problem here, Houston. We got to deal with something. And boy, is it a short hop to feeling superior Mm -hmm. or that you need to teach them a lesson or show them the error of their ways. Mm -hmm. And suddenly it's your righteousness that's driving the bus instead of really cleaning up your own side of the street. And as you absolutely need to, asking others to do the same. But that's really different from being righteous. And you can, what's interesting too, is to, if you want to really do this, make your face, right now, if you're listening Mm, to this, mm -hmm. make your face look righteous Mm. or sit up in a righteous way or bring to bear, I'm doing it right now, a kind of haughty sniff. It feels a certain way. It has a feeling in the body. Yeah. And that's a great way to recognize righteousness when it starts to hijack you. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that a cousin of righteousness is moral outrage. It's a Mm. a version. And this dovetails a little bit with some of the material that we discussed last week in terms of cultural groups and powerful leaders throughout history wanting to mobilize outrage of various kinds and kind of weaponize it. There's, of course, a place for moral outrage. Mm -hmm. But I do think that moral outrage is one of the more dangerous experiences that a person can have and one of the more dangerous sort of emotional states a person can be in. Because as you're saying, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump from moral outrage to some of the, you know, more horrible things that have happened in human history. Sure. And treating that righteousness, treating that sense of superiority and impeccable morality Mm. and us first them that's implicit in the I am a righteous being and these people over here are not because it inherently creates in group out group. Mm -hmm. And when you start grouping in in group out group, that's when you start dehumanizing people. And that's when you start really running some very, very big picture problems. Um, And so for me, that's something that, you know, because politically I've got views and it's very easy for that feeling of moral outrage to start arising in a person, you know, that I'm very conscious of myself and trying to avoid that and trying to be very kind of measured um, with the outrage that I do have. Yeah, of course, really. One of the great things I've learned from you recently Mm. during this political season the last couple of years is to be careful about outrage myself and to be really careful about the head esteem we start building up inside ourselves. When we suddenly start speaking more rapidly, we start driving the point home, we're only interested in agreement with our view. Anybody who doesn't agree with our view, psh, obviously they belong to that other team. And so they're now tarred completely mm-hmm. with one color as soon as we instantly know that they belong to that other team. And you've actually been really great to help me keep in mind that uh, there is complexity. Mm-hmm. In a sense, righteous, righteousness is reductionistic yeah. by its nature. No, I think that's and really it true. loses sight. Yeah, the complexity and the other people on the other side of the political divide, let's say, or on the other side of the bargaining table, that amidst whatever tile in their mosaic that you might appropriately take issue with, given your values and your standards and your with discernment, you're calling out a distinction. Okay, fine. But that is different from getting reductionistically righteous or righteously reductionistic and reducing 
that other person over there entirely to that one single tile that you really disagree with. And honestly, I got to thank you. Uh, you really have helped me here in the, the last couple of years well, well, with regard to this politically. Yeah. And I do also want to note that it's tricky to talk about this sort of stuff because, man, are there things in the world where it is so appropriate to be morally outraged yeah, about them. Tricky. And and that's the, the tender line, right? That's the mm-hmm. tricky thing. I'm not saying to not be morally outraged about some of the horrible things that are happening here in our country or in countries abroad in terms of human rights violations, in terms of terrible things happening to minorities of various kinds, terrible things happening to powerless groups throughout history. There is a total place for moral outrage about those things. But also there is this hijacking element Mm. to moral outrage that is just very dangerous. And part of working skillfully with anger is about throwing out the bathwater and not losing the baby. Yeah. You know, well and said. it's admittedly difficult to balance those two things, but I think that generally speaking with most people in most situations, this is not a situation where something horrendous is happening directly in front of you and you need to take immediate action. But most of the time in most situations, I think that we can do our best to view the person across from us without that topspin of moral outrage. So on that note, I think that it makes sense to bring this episode on working skillfully with anger to a close. We actually covered seven different ways to work skillfully with anger. The first technique was recognizing how anger hurts you and considering the costs of anger. There's a proverb that says getting angry at others is like throwing a burning coal with your bare hands. Both parties are the ones who get burned. Anger can be a very seductive emotion in the moment, but that means that we need to be particularly attentive to the things that it costs us. Then the second point that you raised was to try not speaking or acting from anger, which was a personal practice that you developed when we were children. Then we talked about reducing the priming for anger and reacting proportionally to the event that happens to you. These two things kind of dovetail with each other. Last week, we spent some time talking about reducing the priming. This week, spent a little bit more on reacting in proportion. Then we spent a fair amount of time talking about being careful about fault finding, which was a favor for both of us, including the allegory of the two monks carrying the woman across the river, and this idea that when we find fault with others, we're really carrying their faults around with us. And we're taking, on a certain level, a lot of responsibility for them, kind of. Suddenly it becomes our job to correct all of the people around us. And that's just very wearing. It's not a very fun way to go through life. Then we talked about slowing it down, that amygdala hijack, the idea of getting in between that moment of stimulus and response, and really taking as much time as you need, whether that be a couple seconds or a couple minutes, or a couple days, to make a good and thoughtful decision. Then, finally, we talked about righteousness. Righteousness, and particularly its cousin, moral outrage. And that topspin of, I'm so superior to you, being a huge hidden kind of anger. It's particularly dangerous when it comes in the form of large groups, but it can be just as damaging in our individual relationships with other people. So disengaging with righteousness is a huge way to kind of limit the expression of anger in our lives. So this episode concludes our exploration of the strength of calm as a whole. Next week, we'll have a new episode for you that will start up a whole new conversation on the strength of motivation. I think the material and motivation is some of the most useful that we have when it comes to improving your day-to-day life. So I'm personally really looking forward to that one. 
If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate it and subscribe if you can. So until next time, thanks for listening.